Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Here's something about Washington, D.C. that even a lot of people who live here don't know. Psychedelic mushrooms are basically legal here. Back in 2020, voters approved a ballot initiative that made growing, purchasing, and distributing ethnogenic plant and fungi among the lowest enforcement priorities for D.C. cops. How easy is it to get mushrooms in the nation's capital? Recently, I decided to find out. I sent a text to a number I found online. I was then asked for my address and driver's license and what strains of mushrooms I wanted. Penis Envy and Golden Teachers are probably our most ordered, a friendly person on the other side of the line texted back. An hour later, a car showed up outside my door with a bag of both strains. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. I started hearing a lot about mushrooms and other psychedelics during quarantine in D.C. Suddenly, journalist friends at the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC News, and Politico had become evangelists for the latest trend popular in Silicon Valley, microdosing mushrooms. A lot of this interest was sparked by Michael Pollan's popular 2018 book, How to Change Your Mind what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. That book has now been turned into a popular show on Netflix. In other circles, Joe Rogan's podcasts about mushrooms created a boom in interest. One of my friends started treating their depression with psychedelic-assisted therapy and raved about the progress they were making. And another friend, a veteran, told me about the new company he started working for, Field Trip, which treats depression, anxiety, and PTSD with psychedelic ketamine therapy. The Department of Veteran Affairs is now conducting clinical trials with psilocybin, the drug in psychedelic mushrooms, to treat mental health issues. And at the end of July, it was reported that the Biden administration recently revealed in a letter to Representative Madeline Dean, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, that the FDA is likely to approve the use of psilocybin to treat depression sometime in the next two years. But cities and states are way ahead of the federal government. There are movements in more than two dozen states to either study, decriminalize, or outright legalize mushrooms and other psychedelics. With many veterans as the face of the movement, it's happening in blue states like California, New York, and Vermont, as well as in red states like Utah, Kansas, and Florida. Cities such as Ann Arbor, Michigan, Oakland, California, Seattle, Washington, and Denver, Colorado have, like D.C., all decriminalized mushrooms. And Wall Street is pouring billions into startups that want to sell mind-altering drugs. The movement is following in the footsteps of cannabis legalization. And as with cannabis, Colorado is at the epicenter. This November, Colorado voters will decide whether to approve the Natural Medicine Health Act of 2022, which would create state-regulated healing centers 
or anyone over 21 could receive psilocybin-assisted therapy. Right now in the state, there is an underground network of unlicensed healers and therapists using psilocybin and other psychedelics to treat patients for an assortment of mental health issues. It's one of those things I, I believe that, you know, God's spirit source will guide people to whoever they need for healing. So people just find me, you know, through a word of mouth. I tracked down one such therapist who agreed to talk with me anonymously. It's just giving us the medical freedom to make the choice on how we want to treat our bodies. It's safe to say we are on the cusp of a new frontier in drug legalization that will bring people like her You know, why can't we have options to use plants over pills? Out of the shadows. And in the next few years, psychedelics are going to be easily obtainable in cities and states across the country. And most politicians in Washington haven't even started to think through what their position on this issue should be. I do think that this will eventually be something that is at least decriminalized throughout the nation in the next 10 years. Veronica Lightning Horse Perez is the co-leader of the Colorado campaign. All right, so just uh, one more little test on that mic. Testing, testing, one, two, three, rainbows and sunshine, all can be. I met with her in her own healing center in Littleton, Colorado, to talk about how psychedelics helped treat her mental health issues, what it's like to undergo psychedelic therapy with mushrooms and ayahuasca, and her own journey to becoming the unlikely political activist at the forefront of mushroom legalization. The push to decriminalize and eventually legalize the use of psychedelics isn't exactly like the marijuana legalization push. So what's the problem with the cannabis model from the psilocybin and psychedelics perspective? So cannabis got legalized. As a result of that legalization, all you got to do is follow the rules and get your license and open up, you know, a cannabis shop. You can open up as many as you want, Yeah. you know, pretty much wherever you want, as long as you're zoned for it which makes it very easy for places like we've got, you know, one place, I won't give a name, but I call it the Walmart of cannabis, becomes heartless because it is so open that you can do what you want. I know that that's not fully, but that's what it feels like. I know quite a few small business owners, people of color as well, that had their their shops And they did very well and they grew them and they grew them naturally and they were very good at what they did, but they can't compete with this big place that opens up right down the block. So they got pushed out and there was no statutes, there were no limitations, there was no protections there. You know, what we have in this measure is you get five healing centers throughout Colorado. That's enough. That's still a lot. Interesting. So it's capped at five. Mm -hmm. It's still a lot. But for somebody that's wanting to grow themselves, that's still quite a bit to grow. Who's going to get those five permits to have the healing centers? There'll be an application Per individual or entity. Oh, I see. Yeah. And the the licensing will be done through the state. What's like the model that you use to draft this? Is there any other profession that's regulated that was a model? I'm thinking of like... I don't know, real estate or anything that we, a profession where you have to get a license from the state. Mm. Was there one that was like, we're using this model? I think this is brilliant because this was a community collaboration. There were people from the cannabis world. There were people from Oregon. There were people from California that we talked to. We really looked at what worked and what didn't work. What has been the most frustrating part of this process in trying to you guys successfully got it on the ba- mm-hmm. ballot recently. 
that's not easy to do. What's been the most frustrating part of working in the political space, uh, which was pretty alien to you, and what's been the most encouraging part? The humans. <laughs> <laughs> that's which. Which one is that? All the humans. I mean, what it is is that we're all unique. We all we all come from different backgrounds. We all come from different histories. We've all had different traumas. We all have different opinions, different parties, different political standpoints, all of the things. I think we get in trouble. And what I find frustrating is you have your opinions. I have my opinions. She has her opinions. He has his opinions. When we start enforcing our opinions on somebody else because ours our opinion is the only right opinion – I think that's what gets frustrating to me personally. It is a, a human thing that we do because when we feel like we're right, we want others to also feel like we're right. And I think when it comes to mental health, what's right and who gets to say what's right, which is why I appreciate that this is going to be put to vote because it's not me saying, hey, this is good, we should do this. It is a majority population vote here in Colorado that says, yes, we should do this. Was that the encouraging part or the frustrating part? No, I'm not. I guess that was both. both. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you feel like what's happening here in Colorado, just like marijuana decriminalization and then eventual legalization started in Colorado, do you feel like what you guys are doing is like you're on the cusp of this sort of taking off nationwide? I assume you talk to activists and practitioners in other states and are aware of legislation moving through different state capitals, both in the legislatures and through initiatives. Do you feel like in the next five to 10 years, this is going to explode? In the next five to 10 years? Yes, I would say. By that time, I'm sure the FDA will have moved it from breakthrough status to actually saying, yes, for sure, this has medical benefits. We're already seeing it. So we're definitely going that way. There's too much science behind this for it to just stop here. So I do think that this will eventually be something that is at least decriminalized throughout the nation in the next 10 years. So now that you've been in politics a little bit, who is the politician either in Colorado or nationally who you think most needs this therapy? <laughs> <laughs> I decline to answer that question. <laughs> All right. Wow, you've really become you've really become politically adept. My personal opinion. This is just my personal opinion. I think this would benefit everyone, twenty-one years of age or older, <laughs> to try at least once in their lifetime. That's my personal opinion. So um, let's back up a lot. Where'd you grow up? I've been around a lot. I was born in El Paso, lived in Texas quite a while, Colorado, Michigan for a little while, back to Texas, back to Colorado. Part of the complex PTSD was Colorado. It occurred in Colorado, so I wanted out of Colorado. When I was able to basically heal that, I was able to come back and really see the beauty of this place again. Tell us what happened and how that was healed. So complex PTSD is where you have a trauma, and then you have another trauma, and then you have another trauma, and they kind of overlay themselves. So I had uh, sexual trauma when I was a child. And then again, when I was a little bit of an older child, and then a rape when I was a teenager. Um, I was also run over by a car by some very racist individuals, oh uh, which 
compounded that feeling of not being safe, yeah. you know, not being able to protect myself. And that's where things started to really get, uh, really get dark for me. When a person feels unsafe in their environment, unloved, sometimes the only thing that the brain can do is figure that they must deserve that in some way. And then I had a heart attack. Oh, my God. And that heart attack is actually what really woke me up. How Be old were you when you had the heart attack? 30. And if you, you don't mind me asking, how old are you now? You look, you know, you look 30 now. Oh, thank you. 40. Uh, okay. So, so the heart attack was like finally rock bottom of all of this. Yeah. At that point, I was, I call it my dark times because I didn't want to be here. You know, it, it was depression, pretty much as bad as depression could get, especially when you're sick. And I was physically sick. And, you know, I had that event. It was a minor cardiac event, but it was enough to make me realize that I needed to be here. I had children. My children did not have a place that I felt was a good place for them to go. Should I cross over? How many kids did you have by the time you were 30? Five. You had five, yeah, five of them mm -hmm. in your 20s. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had my first at 21, which I thought was all grown up. <laughs> I recommend starting at 27 now. <laughs> um, but that really woke me up. You know, that's okay. what actually got me on the NLP track because the doctors didn't have an answer. These are medications. You're looking at being in a wheelchair with a colostomy bag with spinal fusions. They were predicting that for you? Mm -hmm. That's how bad physically you were? Mm -hmm. So when you were in your 20s and going through all of this before the heart attack, did you seek other kinds of treatment for the depression and the PTSD that you were experiencing? I was on 12 different medications. That was actually shortly before I had the heart attack. It was a, a wake-up moment as well because I'm walking out of the pharmacy with two large bags and the way that the pharmacist looked at me. And then I see myself in the reflection of those glass doors at the King Supers. And I'm this old and I'm carrying these two massive bags of medication it's like, no, no, not okay. So when did you discover some of the therapies that really turned things around for you? It was very shortly after the heart attack. Somebody had suggested NLP, so I started looking into it. and Explain it. For listeners that don't have any idea what that is, what's the easy way to explain that? So there's two really good explanations. One, it was originally designed for to be the study of success. So you take successful individuals and you map out their strategies, you figure out what their codes are, uh, the brain and the unconscious mind codes information in images, symbols, and pictures. Depending on how you produce that image, symbol, or picture, you're able to get an understanding of whether or not that's something you believe, disbelieve, is this imagination, is this a trauma, what it is, all by how that picture looks size, color, you know, so on and so forth. But it was absolutely life-changing. So I just kept going back over the years. All right. Connect those experiences with the reason I'm here in Colorado. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> that led me to look at the problem of depression and the problem of trauma that is so persistent and pervasive in our communities. Learning how people get where they go especially in their dark times, was very important. I was able to get a lot of people very far, but I felt like something was missing. You started doing this therapy on your own after it healed yeah. you. Got yep, it. since I got my uh, practitioner certification. Got it. And when you did know, you do that? 10 years ago. Okay, so right yeah, after the heart right attack. Right after. Immediately after that, all of this came yeah. into your life. Yeah, and I you had recovered to live. very quickly. Yeah, 
Got it. And so now you've been practicing this for a decade, helping others the way it helped you. Yeah. And then in the past couple of years, we started talking about psychedelics. Psychedelics were not a part of this 10 years ago when you started. No, they were not. Not. You know, I had had a couple of people that had had profound experiences with ayahuasca actually having gone to Peru. Yeah. So I started really doing research with it. I had reached out. I have a friend that is a large part of a Native American church. And she was able to perform ceremonies in the traditional way. So I had talked to her about the possibility of using this, and she gifted me um, on my own. I had been doing research about microdosing, and I was initially hesitant with it. It sat there in my lockbox for a good three months. The ayahuasca? The uh, mushrooms. The mushrooms. Yeah. From the same person. Yeah. Just for people who don't know, explain quickly what ayahuasca is. So ayahuasca is a South American vine. Uh, It is brewed into a very strong tea. Both were very profound and both helped me in completely different ways. They are different medicines. They behave differently. And I learned completely different things, completely different healing. Psilocybin is the main psychedelic ingredient in mushrooms. Correct. What's the uh, equivalent in ayahuasca? Dimethyltreptamine, um, DMT. DMT, right. Which Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's start with the first time with the mushrooms. What's the preferred term for mushrooms? Do you prefer talking about them as psilocybin, as mushrooms, as magic mushrooms? Like what's the, in the therapeutic setting, what do you like to refer to them as? In a therapeutic setting, it's psilocybin. A lot of people don't know that word because it's the active ingredient. So I will say mushrooms. Yeah. They are magic. You know, (laughs) they really are. I I have seen miracles with people healing with these things. So they are magic mushrooms, but it's an old term. Yeah. Yeah. Psilocybin or mushrooms. Okay. Did you start with microdosing? I did. You did? Yeah. Which explain what that's all about and the difference between that and a full journey. So a full journey, the recommended dosage for that is 3.5 grams. For a microdose, it's 0.05 to 0.07. So it is a tiny amount. You're not feeling the effects of that. The point is to not feel the effects of that. To me, microdosing was very much a performance enhancer. It did quiet some of my nervousness. I have a lot on my plate and I do a lot and I sit daily with people reliving some of their worst traumas of their life, um, which isn't easy to do year after year. And it helped a lot with that. It helped a lot with clarity. The microdosing was what kind of allowed me to open up to research this further because I am unwilling to recommend anything to anyone that I haven't personally experienced. Got it. When I talk to other people who are interested in microdosing mushrooms because it's become this like huge thing now, Mm -hmm. you can't go to a conference in California or Aspen or any of the kind of like elite conference circuits without 10 panels on, mm-hmm. you, you know, either people trying to get into the business of this or trying to get the FDA to do something about it. And it's, as you know, it's this huge thing in the tech world and mm-hmm. Silicon Valley. And now, fascinatingly so, in Washington, D.C., where I live, which is a very, you know, kind of buttoned down town when it comes to drugs and especially psychedelics where it's legal. But I, you know, I got an interest in this piece because I just started hearing from all of my like journalist friends, like, yeah, I've started microdosing mushrooms. <laughs> Have you done it yet? 
And it was just kind of this underground thing. But all of these people I know, you know, reporters at the New York Times and NBC and these other institutions, I was like, okay, well, if people in DC are now doing this, that, you know, DC is usually like five to 10 years behind on these kind of things. Mm -hmm. It's probably like exploding out in the real world. (laughs) So tell us about the first full trip experience on psilocybin after you experimented with the microdosing. It was a little rough. Did you do it with a, a guide? Is that the right? I thing? did it with a guide, yeah. a, a seasoned guide. Yeah. And it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. No. However, the integration afterwards and the, I call it a purge, the purge that it allowed me to do. I don't know if there's a model for how this is done. I imagine different guides do it different ways. But for you, what was the setting like? So this particular person, it, it was a, a home. And it was someone a, you trust, someone you knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't known him very long, but I had done my research and asked him a bunch of hard questions, and he was able to answer all of those hard questions. I brought my husband with me, so my husband was there also just to oversee and to help where he could. But I had been able to do a lot of work with the NLP and the timeline therapy, where I could go back and I could revisit the memory without fear and without pain. However, there was a deeper layer to that. And when I was a child, enduring that abuse, I couldn't say anything. I didn't have a voice. And when I was able to have this healing journey, I was able to find my voice. In a way that you hadn't. In the way that I hadn't before. And I was able to purge so much that I did not realize was still locked within me, including some blame for people around me that I had held accountable that I didn't even realize that I was holding accountable. Unfairly so, until you realized? Unfairly so, because this was a situation in which it was within the mind of a child, this is a monster. In actuality, this is a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old. And in order to have my sister left alone, I became a willing participant. So that in and of itself does a lot to the mind. And at a very deep level, I held resentment towards my sister because this is what I endured in in order to protect you. I did not realize that was there. When I came out of that experience, I could breathe. I could stand up straight. I kind of had had this hunched posture that I had attributed to the spinal disorder From the car accident. From the car accident, yes. And it wasn't. It wasn't all that. It was this hiding. It was this unconscious fear that was still locked within me. And I did my integration sessions, and it was mind-blowing how much I was able to grow, how much I was able to let go, how much I was able to see clearly and forgive, because this was not a monster. This was also a damaged child that did this. And I could not see that before this experience. And and I couldn't feel it before this experience. Do you mean the person who assaulted you? Mm -hmm. So part of it was forgiving that person? Mm -hmm. And I thought I had, which was the funny thing. I thought I had, but I hadn't really. I had to face some unpleasant things, but oh, is it worth it? And I would do it again in a heartbeat. That's absolutely incredible. But And that all happened in the... In one session? In one session. For people who have no experience with this drug, you're there with the guide. Mm -hmm. Is it 
you're taking this in, is a tea and a capsule? Just tell us how it's done physically. This was done by soaking the mushrooms in lemon juice because the vitamin C is an activator and it helps you to absorb it. It was... On the Reddit threads, they call this lemon tech. Is this a real thing? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. And there's science behind it as well. And it was done in the evening God because you're tired afterwards. <laughs> but the process, I believe we started around 8 o'clock. Um, we finished the medicine, the, the the journey, so to speak, was over around 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, after which I... Slept like I have never slept before. Is the guide there helping you or talking to you so you get to the sort of issue that you're there to address? Or not yes, necessarily? He was. Yeah. Yes, yeah. he was. And so when you do this with the guide, you're going into it with the intention of, I have this issue and I want to really focus on this. Because, in other words, if you're just there, taking the mushrooms and your mind's wandering to whatever issues are going on in your life, I imagine it's a very different experience. So does it have to be very intentional? It does need to be intentional. Yes. There are different versions of this therapy. One is where the guide is very proactive in there is discussion. What are you experiencing? Where are you? What's happening? What do you need to say? There is that version. There is also the blindfold where you stay quiet. There is a sitter versus a guide that just makes sure that you're safe. Got it. Um, and you're not talking at all and you're just kind of like doing completely your own thing internal. in your own head. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. There are also the traditional ceremonial versions of it as well for more of a cultural aspect. So it really does depend on what you're looking for. The intention is to heal. Yeah. And what you think you need consciously might not be what you need. You didn't have a blindfold on, so you were, you know, looking at the lights or looking around the room during that experience. Mm -hmm. What are your perceptions doing? What are your your hearing, your eyes, your sensations? What does it do to you in, in that sense physically? I can only speak to myself personally because I have spoken with people that it was the most amazing experience. It was nothing but love and a reignition of hope a connection to a higher power. For me, I did not really have any visuals up until the latter part of it. And it was because of what I was working with, where I brought up the images of what I was feeling. Yeah. Once I was able to bring up the images of what I was feeling, I was literally able to have the confrontation I never got to have. Wow. The confrontation with your sister. With my sister and with my abuser at the time. Wow. So you had an amazing, successful experience with this yes. from, a, from a therapeutic sense. So did it make you like instantly an evangelist for this, for other people who were thinking about it? No, actually it wasn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't touch this stuff. It's too crazy. <laughs> no, actually, I, I mean, I did. It's like, this is amazing. Yeah. Like people need to have access to this. If people are willing to do this, they should be able to do this because this is magic. It wasn't until I sat with in traditional ceremony with ayahuasca that that was a different experience. And that was where it's not a matter of people should have access to this. And it became a people need to have access to this. The world is so much bigger than we think. Our communities are so much more important than we've really given value to. And that's why I'm working with this legislation now. 
as things stand now, and even two years ago when, when this happened, how difficult is it for someone to find a guide and get access to ayahuasca the way that you did for, for this experience? Ayahuasca is, there are churches, legal churches now throughout the United States, including here in Colorado, that you can go to and it's completely legal. So it is easier to access ayahuasca at this point in time oh, through a church than it is a mushroom. Huh. And like the Supreme Court, I think there was like a Supreme Court decision, if I'm not mistaken, that protects that religious ceremony use for ayahuasca. I believe right? so. It's like it's legally, whether it's a Supreme Court or not, it's legally protected because it's a religious, it's a First Amendment thing, I believe. Has there's so much curiosity about psychedelics. Have those churches been like flooded with psychedelic tourists who are curious about this stuff? I know of one that, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, they most definitely are. There is a yeah. waiting list. They do have questions and they have education and also preparation and setting and integration yeah. as well. I think any time that you're dealing with a, a psychedelic substance, that's going to be key. Preparation, yeah. set and setting, your safety is paramount. I know of several of them and they make sure that there is a nurse on hand. A lot of them have drug testing. There's a prescribed diet before you go in. There is a mental health evaluation before they'll accept you. Like they wow. want to make sure that you're safe. All right. So a month later, tell us about the ayahuasca experience. And this is something really a lot of people have no idea about because that's that's not a common recreational drug. No, no, it's not. And I was working on myself. I had yeah. already had felt that I had reached the point where I couldn't do the work myself anymore. I needed to find something else to continue working. Yeah. I have a lot of trauma that I'm dealing with for a single human being. Yeah. So that's going to take time. So with the ayahuasca... This was actually made real public by good old Joe Rogan. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yes. Actually, that's where my husband heard about ayahuasca and oh, started that, doing research himself. That's funny because my <laughs> – that's really interesting. I, did, I had no idea that Rogan – my touchstone for this is Michael Pollan. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, Rogan's probably a much bigger deal than Pollan is. It caused quite a sensation, actually. Quite a few people I talked to, like, where'd you hear this? Joe Rogan. Interesting. Oh, I'll have to go back and listen to that show. So you must have known about it before your husband, though, no? I had heard about it, but I hadn't been moved to do research on it until he brought it to my attention and said that this was something he might want to do. That's wild, because you're like immersed in this world. Mm -hmm. And he found out from yeah. Joe Rogan. Yeah, yep. And it's, to me, it's one thing at That's a really time, funny. You know? So the ayahuasca journey, I also did it with a, a church. Yes, completely different sensations, completely different experience. I did have visuals with the ayahuasca, and that really helped me realize that I think a lot of us do this. It's like we have this dark side of us that we don't like, and it, it's not the good side. And we're always trying to push it down or banish it or say it's not appropriate or whatever it is that we do with that part of us that we don't like. And throughout that journey, it became very clear that that's not the way to do it. If you can love the good part of yourself, well, that's pretty easy. What about loving the whole you, including the part of you that you might not like, the part of you that snaps at the people that you care or wants to throw in the towel when things get hard, whatever it is. And that really showed me and brought me face to face with this, you know, there are some therapies that call it the shadow 
You know, some people will label them as personal demons, whatever you want to call them. It's the part of you you don't like and you're always trying to hide. It brought me face to face with that. And in my tears and in my snot, I was beautiful, absolutely beautiful, because I was willing to do what it took to become a better person, to seek out that happiness that I knew I deserved and to embrace all of me, even the yucky stuff. And it was such a profound experience that it still stays with me to this day. Mind-blowing. How many hours was this? You're really not good at time in ceremony. So I think the entire ceremony is about five to six hours. And I think I've heard this expression before, but what you just described, it sounds like 10 years worth of therapy (laughs) happening in an afternoon or a night. Yeah. Most people can't use this stuff. I mean, the law against mushrooms is really strict. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know there aren't a ton of prosecutions for mushrooms for whatever reason that is, but on the books, the federal laws are extremely strict, right? How do you go from these experiences to realizing like, okay, there's got to be a way to get these legally into a, a therapeutic setting? How do you get involved in the politics of this? Uh, I met some people who knew some people who knew some people. Um, <laughs> Just explain the ballot initiative and the way that your campaign has decided to present this to the voters. Because there are different ways to go at this. Yes. Our goal was to create a model that would meet as many people as possible where they are. So that looks like a regulated model with healing centers, trained facilitators, and it also looks like people not being criminalized for using these substances. And that is essentially what our initiative is, is let's create a regulated model. Let's make it safe. Let's have guardrails. Let's have licenses. Let's have tiered trainings and tiered licenses because there are some people that would just prefer a sitter. And there are some people that have PTSD hardcore PTSD. That's a different level of training versus, I mean, this is huge for people that are facing uh, terminal diseases. Huge. Because they have real mental health issues. And we're in a country where we make them physically comfortable, but we don't have anything for the emotional fear and pain that goes into a end of life scenario, a death sentence by a doctor. And now we do. Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And thank you. Thank you for the conversation. And that's our show. Our producers are Afra Abdullah and Kara Tabor. Adam Allington is our senior producer. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Almond is the executive producer of audio at Politico. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening.